Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks so much for being uh, with us. There are some big national uh, headlines in politics today, of course. Uh, President Biden launches his bid for a second term with a video that went out at 6 o'clock this morning. Tucker Carlson has been ousted at Fox News, which is going to have a huge impact on the conservative media front. And to a lesser extent, um, CNN's decision to fire Anchor Don Lemon uh, fits into this, too, largely because one of the reasons they got rid of him is some very insulting comments he made about women in general, but focused rather specifically on presidential candidate Nikki Haley, who, by the way, now is out with a fundraising letter (laughs) trumpeting the fact that uh, Don Lemon has been fired. So those are big national stories, and we're going to spend time on those on tomorrow's show. But... We have Tamar Hallerman, our Tuesday partner on Political Rewind from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution with us. And Tamar, I think you arguably, you and your uh, colleague Bill Rankin, arguably broke the biggest story uh, in politics yesterday when you reported that um, Fonnie Willis has now set a timetable for whether or not she is going, announcing whether or not there will be indictments in her uh, investigation of efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. I want to start you off on that, but let me first uh, bring in um, Anthony uh, Michael Christ, uh, Georgia State University professor of law, and Fred Smith, who is, of course, a professor of law at Emory University. But Tamar, what did you report, uh, and uh, what are the implications of it? Well, thanks for having me, Bill. Um, My colleague and I were able to get our hands on a set of letters that Fulton D.A. Willis sent to the Fulton County Sheriff, to APD, and other law enforcement agencies, basically alerting them to start preparing for potential indictments between July 11th and September 1st. And the reason why this is notable is because it's one of the strongest signals yet that we've seen from the DA's office that she's on the verge of trying to obtain an indictment against former President Trump. This is not the kind of letter that you send if you're not planning to take a big action like that. She, uh, the quote that you have from that letter, which you were able to get to, is, please accept this correspondence as notice to allow you sufficient time to prepare the sheriff's office, that was one of the letters, went out to the Fulton County Sheriff, and coordinate with local, state, and federal agencies to ensure that our law enforcement community is ready to protect the public. Um, Tamar, the additional reporting that I've seen this morning uh, CNN reported uh, at the 8 o'clock hour that uh, Willis is also now uh, finding more people who have information they want to share about the uh, her investigation, and that may be slowing down a little bit her timetable as well. Are you uh, hearing the same thing? Yes. Last week, we know um, that... The DA's office was interviewing several of the alternate GOP electors who had been previously announced as targets of the investigation. And that suggests that the DA's office was able to strike some sort of immunity agreement for folks um, who, for the last nine months, were not talking at all, refused to talk, and now all of a sudden are coming in for interviews. So that suggests that the DA's office has new cooperation and potentially new information to chase um, to open up even more avenues for this investigation. Um, It's worth noting that July is much later than what we thought would be the timeline for this. Mm -hmm. Um, As recently as last week, I was being um, 
told that that May was looking more likely. Um, yeah. So the fact that July is the date that's now being thrown out, you know, July to September, um, it shows that maybe there's a lot more to go. Maybe they have been getting good intelligence from these electors or other folks, or maybe they're just mindful that there are legal challenges that are going to have to play out. The DA's office is trying to remove the lawyer who's representing 10 of those electors. Um, they're also fighting off a motion from Trump's attorneys who are seeking to basically throw out all of the evidence compiled by the special grand jury and to remove the DA's office from the investigation. So there's going to be action in the meantime um, that'll keep us busy between now and July for sure. I, in a moment, I want to get into a couple of those uh, wrinkles that you've uh, just talked about. But, but Anthony, I've gotten notes from a couple of listeners already this morning um, who have read uh, Tamara's story. And what they've asked is, uh, does a regular grand jury now have to be impaneled to actually bring an indictment? And of course, Anthony, the answer to that is yes. The special grand jury did not have the power to indict it had the power to investigate and make recommendations, right? Right. So so what we were looking at with this July 11th to September 1st timeline is, is essentially a term of court, a term of, of the next uh, regular grand jury that will be impaneled to sit in Fulton County to potentially um, right here the evidence and and have charges brought against Donald Trump or Rudy Giuliani or any number of, of defendants. So um, what we're really waiting for, I think, now is to see what else shakes out in terms of these immediate um, motions to um, you know disqualify the attorney for one for some of the fake electors, as Tamar uh, noted, and, and some of these constitutional challenges, which I think have been brought too early by the, Trump's defense team. But but we've got some of these other preliminary things. And I think all the while they're going to continue to unearth more evidence and they're going to continue to try to get uh, potential defendants to cooperate through immunity deals and things of that nature. Uh, Fred, just yeah. your general impressions. Sure. Um... Well, it appears uh, that they are getting additional information and that inf information could either be about um, intent or it could be about actions that uh, that were taken, right? So um, important to many potential charges are um, what the fake electors knew and certainly most important of all for, um, for, for many listeners, what uh, President Trump knew. Um, because I mean, we know what he said on the phone call, but we don't. Um, but, you know, additional statements that he might have made at the time or any statements that kind of indicate that they knew or that individuals who were involved in this knew um, that uh, that President Trump had lost Georgia um, and that they were acting with that understanding. Right. Which, of course, is different than um, if they were acting with, with the true understanding that uh, he had, in, in fact, won the state of Georgia. And that, so um, to the extent that they have information to share on that, that's going to certainly shape the uh, potential charges. So, Tamar, uh, let's dig in a little bit more to the fact that, as you and Bill Rankin uh, re reported last week, and as you've mentioned now, that immunity offers did go out apparently to a couple of the, at least a couple of the fake electors. You reported that at least one of them accused a fellow elector of actually breaking. Uh, the law. So talk about that a little bit, but then I'd like to help our listeners understand a little bit more about what's going on for the attorney representing, I think now 10 of the electors who Fannie Willis is trying to have removed from the case. So start by talking about the apparent immunity offers, please. So we know that last summer, um, the DA's office was interested in floating immunity deals to some of the electors, but not all of it, not all of them. Um, we know that Judge McBurney, who was overseeing the case, basically said, float it to everyone, and then you can kind of approach folks individually. But as the DA's office saw it, they had some complications because there were these two lawyers who were representing 11 of the 16 electors. And based on court filings that we saw, it seemed that the DA's office wanted to offer these immunity deals to some of the 11 they were representing, but not all. And they were arguing that having these same two lawyers representing everyone was creating conflicts of interest because 
these 11 electors were sort of acting as a block and presenting a united front and saying, we're all on the same page. We all have the same representation. Treat us as a group. The DA's office was trying to say, we don't want to. We think there are bigger fish in this group. We, there are smaller fish in this group who we are much more likely to want to cut immunity deals with. Um, and in a pretty extraordinary court filing last week, the DA's office accused this attorney, who, who now represents 10 of them, um, for basically withholding these immunity deals and not informing her clients that the DA's office was offering this, even though this attorney came back and reported to the DA's office, yes, we offered it, none of them are interested. It's a pretty extraordinary allegation um, and one that could potentially lead to disbarment. But in a really interesting yeah. twist, the, that very same evening, that lawyer said, no, 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 I did offer them immunity. I have documentary evidence to prove it. You guys are gravely mistaken. And so we don't know who's right at this point. And these are some very shocking allegations to be throwing around. You would think that if the DA's office was going to say something like this, they would not be offering it without evidence. And you would think that if this lawyer is so vehemently defending herself, you know, she mentioned having the, you know, tapes and emails to prove otherwise. So we don't really know what's what at this point, but it's very extraordinary allegations. It's extraordinary, as you mentioned, we know that one of, at, at least a few of these electors were kind of pointing the gun at somebody else and saying they had broken the law. We don't know who that elector was who might've broken the law. So a lot of extraordinary allegations and not much detail at this point. Fred, of all of the uh, fake electors who received target letters from the DA quite a while back now, um, the one who was, of course, drawn, uh, I think it's fair to say, well, two of them, Burt Jones, who is now lieutenant governor, but who's been severed from this case uh, because McBurney found that Fannie Willis, by uh, holding a fundraiser for Charlie Bailey, his opponent in the general election, uh, had put herself in a compromising position. So Burt Jones is out of the picture. But the other one is David Schaefer, the chairman of the state Republican Party, a former state senator, longtime influential state uh, senator who ran against Burt Jones for lieutenant governor and lost in the primary. Uh, but, Fred, I think I'm right that to some extent this effort to separate out is one way to get uh, uh, Schaefer uh, in a different position from these other fake electors. No, yeah, that could absolutely be the case, right? So when immunity deals uh, are offered, um, you know, sometimes they're offered with specific, you know, charges. Uh, you know, you can plead guilty to this lesser included, or it could be that you're not going to face charges uh, at all. Um, you know, but you can imagine someone with the specter of RICO charges, for example, hanging over uh, their head um, with an ability to plead to something less or or to you know uh, be able to actually avoid mm. prosecution altogether um might be willing to come forward with uh with more facts uh, and it looks like that's happening and it could be that um that david schaefer is one of the um the bigger targets and even though um burt jones can't be prosecuted by fonnie willis we may learn information um that would put the special prosecutor in the position of um, needing to prosecute um burt jones um it's notable that um that the summer GOP convention in Georgia, that there's some individuals who are skipping it, most notably Governor Kemp and Attorney General Carr uh, and Raffensperger are all skipping it um, because um, so many people have kind of come into leadership there um, who uh, went all in on the big lie. Um, but the notable exception, as I read in the Atlanta Journal Constitution, um, is uh, the, no the notable uh, exception is Burt Jones, um, who uh, will attend nonetheless, right? So he's continuing to kind of uh, align himself um, with um, with that dimension of the Georgia GOP. Anthony? Yeah, I think it's really important to understand that all of these fake electors from the GOP, um, you know, they come from all different walks of life and they they have varying degrees of involvement and, and um, you know, kind of um, networks that might indicate how much they know or don't know and and how much um you know how how you know the, the extent to which they were involved in the entire scheme david schaefer of course is is 
probably the one who um, has gotten the most attention because, in fact, he was the lead and he is the the chair of the Georgia GOP um, and, of course, Burke Jones. But you also had, you know, others who, you know, some are just kind of like low, low, low level county volunteers and others were lawyers who were actually going on national news networks um, and advocating for the big lie and, and spreading, you know, mistruths and misinformation about the election. And so these are not all similarly situated individuals, even though they were all engaged in similar conduct. And I think what really Fonnie Willis needs to do here and what she's trying to do here is peel away those who have enough information, but maybe aren't right. The, the David Schaefer's, the Burt Jones kinds of, of of folks who are that deeply involved, but who have the inside knowledge that might make it easier to bring a case um, against certain you know individuals, whether it be David Schaefer or others um, up, you know, higher up in the campaign food chain. Um, all right. So, Tamar, let's expand. Go ahead. Why don't you respond to, to, to what we're just talking about? And then I want to add another element. But go ahead. Yeah. Piggybacking off something that Anthony just mentioned, the DA's office has already been successful in separating David Schaefer from the rest of the electors. Back in, I think it was October, November, they were trying to, to separate these two attorneys who were representing these 11 mm. electors. And they were able to get a ruling from Judge McBurney, basically acknowledging that David Schaefer is not similarly situated to the other electors, an admission that he is the bigger fish in this group. And he basically forced these two attorneys to kind of pick either between David Schaefer and everyone else. And that's exactly what happened. There were initially two representing the 11, and now one of the lawyers is representing David Schaefer. This other woman, Kimberly burroughs Debro in Noonan is representing 10. And so that's kind of where we find ourselves right now. The DA's office is trying to once again sever this woman representing 10 and kind of split up those folks. But David Schaefer right now is on his own. Uh, we should also point out, uh, before we move on, that while while uh, Judge McBurney separated Burt Jones from this particular uh, investigation where he was a target, um, it's I think I'm right to say uh, tomorrow it's the Prosecuting Attorneys Council which will be in a position of looking at whether to appoint, as Anthony mentioned, a special counsel who will then investigate Burt Jones. And I think the speculation around this is that they're not going to take action until they see what Fonnie Willis does with all these other uh, fake uh, electors. But then Burt Jones could find himself in jeopardy potentially once more. What, what's happening tomorrow with the lawsuit that you mentioned that Donald Trump's lawyers uh, filed, in which they've asked that the special grand jury evidence be thrown out, that the final report be thrown out, and that Willis and her office should be disqualified from pursuing a case against Trump. It's the nuclear bomb uh, laid out by Trump's lawyers. Uh, on what basis are they bringing that lawsuit, and where does it stand in terms of a court action? Well, you forgot about one other thing. They're asking Judge McBurney, who's been overseeing this whole investigation yes. so far, to recuse himself, which he basically ignored in his order. Um, he has directed the DA's office to respond by May 1st to this very sweeping court order, which, of course, become, comes before we know anything about whether former President Trump is going to be indicted or not. <clears throat> what they're seeking to get is some sort of stay to kind of drag this thing out on appeal um, to make Fonnie Willis think twice or or to just drag this on as long as you can into the political season. Um, they are basically citing a lot of the comments that the DA made to the media, that Judge McBurney made to the media, that the forewoman Emily Kors did in her remarks to the media, as well as some of the other jurors who talked to Bill Rankin and myself for the AJC. Um, and basically their argument is that this was not a professional investigation um, that crossed several lines in terms of disclosure and basically that the whole process was kind of corrupted from the beginning. And so they, they believe that any evidence generated by the special grand jury should be tossed out. It's a pretty extraordinary claim. Um, but when you're a defense attorney, the name of the game is delay. And if this can help them delay, then it's a success. Well, and, and that so if McBurney is part of this, uh, where does this get heard? In his court? It will be heard in his court as far as I know, but it's likely that any result will be appealed by the losing side. So this could be appealed several levels up the food chain. 
You know, Anthony, uh, I think Tamar just made a key point. This is Donald Trump. We have known this about Donald Trump for literally decades. His uh, common practice when he is sued is to do everything he can to delay, 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 keep adding complications to lawsuits, not only to delay them, but to obfuscate uh, the uh, intent of a lawsuit that may have been filed against him. Well, I think the one thing that we can say about Donald Trump's selections of of lawyers historically is that they haven't been pretty they have not been good. Um, however, his his defense team here in Georgia is perhaps his best set of, of attorneys that he has right now. Um, and what he's trying to do and the defense is trying to do is, in fact, yes, delay. Um, but they're, they're, I think they're trying to throw in a wrench at a time uh, in the, the process that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Right. So what they're saying in the first instance is that the entire special purpose grand jury system here in Georgia is unconstitutional because its purpose and its role and its function isn't clearly delineated in state law sufficient that people know exactly what's expected of them, which is not, which is, it's just nonsense, right? They, they are a, a arm of an investigatory arm of the district attorney's office. That's the way it's always worked. It's not, you know, it's, it's not nothing special or unique here. Um, and the process, I think similarly, yes, people have talked to the media, but at the same time, we have to acknowledge the district attorneys here in Georgia they are political actors. Um, the, the jurors who spoke did not release any information that is really going to taint the process, right? That they did everything within the bounds of what they're permitted to do. So, um, you know, I, I think the defense here is doing exactly what the defense is supposed to do to be zealous defense, you know, to, to have a zealous defense of their client. Um, but I also ultimately think that it won't be successful because it's just not right to raise these kinds of, of claims at this particular moment. Fred, um, let me add one more element um, to the legal side of this, um, and then we're going to take a break and come back, and I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about what the timing that Fannie Willis has laid out means politically, but let me add the one legal element. Uh, The New York Times uh, reported late last week that testimony before the January 6th committee, which had not been revealed previously publicly, was that Trump himself was involved in a conversation about getting data from Coffee County in South Georgia, as well as from precincts in Michigan as well, two states that the Trump campaign said were decided uh, uh, through uh, uh, misconduct by fixing the Dominion voting machines and giving the elections to Biden in those states. So we recall that the uh, chair of the Coffee County Board of Elections and a team of Trump allies went into the Coffee County election office. They accessed sensitive voter data um, in this effort to prove the Dominion voting machines were rigged. Now, what makes this interesting is it does potentially add another element that Fonnie Willis may be pursuing, which is how involved was Trump in either directing or agreeing uh, in this meeting in the Oval Office that this is the this ought to move forward. Sure, right. And that gets a little tricky because uh, Fonnie Willis, of course, has jurisdiction over Fulton County, right? She doesn't have jurisdiction over Coffee County. That's a different district attorney. That said, uh, there could be actions that, uh, that Trump was involved in Coffee County that could shed additional light on uh, President Trump's intent uh, when he made the phone call to Raffensperger. So all of the, the, the kind of the other circumstantial evidence um, that took place even outside uh, of Fulton County um, can weigh on that particular question. Um, I do want to say on the uh, disqualification motion piece, that's not typically the type of thing that could be immediately appealable. That doesn't mean that one won't try and have, and make a court say that it's not immediately appealable, but typically immediate appeals are reserved for the types of things that can't be handled later when a, when a case, uh, in a trial case, when a, when a trial <clears throat> Um, court has come to its final decision, uh, and then you know people can raise all of the different uh, errors that they think happen. And the reason for that is that otherwise, every time one sees an error or potential error, you could always say, "Okay, we need to halt these proceedings, and I'm going to take this up to the Georgia Supreme Court. I'm going to take this up to the Supreme Court, um, and it would be uh, decided in this kind of piecemeal way, um, and you wouldn't actually be able to have a, a cohesive case. Um, and this wouldn't typically be the type of thing that would be immediately appealable. 
So let me just say, and then tomorrow you'll finish this off. Uh, what that means is that the Trump lawyer, Drew Findling, being the chief lawyer who, as Anthony points out, is a really, really powerful defense, uh, criminal defense lawyer. Uh, it's not something that, that, that would necessarily in any way delay Fonnie Willis's moving forward with the indictments. She may decide that she's going to bring whatever. Tomorrow, uh, finish this off before we take a break. I wanted to piggyback off Fred's excellent point about Coffee County and how it helps uh, <laughs> potentially prove criminal intent. It could also play into a potential racketeering charge because in Georgia, uh, our racketeering law is written quite broadly and much more broadly than the federal law. And so you're able to pull in predicate acts even if they don't happen in Fulton County. It doesn't even have to happen in Georgia. That's my understanding anyway. So stuff, you know, a, a crime that couldn't stand alone in a Fulton County court could still be pulled in as a predicate act under RICO. And so that's why Coffee County is such an interesting case in all of this. Sullivan Strickland, the data services firm that was hired by Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani, uh, is based in Atlanta, so based in Fulton County. Um, so that could very much play into a racketeering charge there. And my understanding is that the special grand jury, uh, based on some of my interviews with jurors, was very interested in what happened in Coffee County. So um, worth keeping that under your hat as we pay attention to what, what might be coming in July. Um, yeah, Fred, real quick before I break. I'll be, I'll be very, very quick. I'll just say, you know, Fonnie Willis has uh, on her side here uh, John Floyd, who wrote the George Rico statute. Uh, so Fonnie Willis herself is very familiar <laughs> with it, but she also has brought in uh, additional help. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so that statute they're going to know inside and out. Um, thank you for adding uh, that last element. Um, all right, we're going to take a break. First of all, thanks to all three of you for packing so much information into what's happening at the, in the, on the legal side of this case. When we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit about this in terms of the timing politically, and then I'm really eager to discuss exactly what's happening with the uh, federal uh, battle over the legality of Mifepristone. We'll do that when we return on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Fred Smith, professor of law at Emory University, Anthony Michael Kreiss, a law professor at Georgia State, and Tamar Hallerman with me. We're talking about Fonnie Willis's investigation of efforts to overturn the 2020 election and new material information uh, that we're getting. One quick point before we talk about the politics, Tamar, because I don't want it to get lost in all of what we just talked about. It is really important that Fonnie Willis is alerting law enforcement to be prepared for potential trouble um, if, if significant indictments against people like Donald Trump, Rudolph Giuliani, um, others uh, should come down. And it, in fact, as you write in your story, uh, breaking all of this news, uh, there have already been security crackdowns surrounding the special grand jury when there was the concern that trouble could break out. But potentially indicting a former president is a whole different ballgame. Um, if Trump is forced to appear in an arraignment, um, we're talking about Secret Service agents, um, snipers, street closures, protesters, counter protesters. There's a lot of planning that needs to go into all of this. And I know that authorities have been closely watching what's going on in New York to kind of get a feel for, for what they might be able to expect. Of course, we just don't have the sheer manpower that they have in New York. This isn't lower Manhattan um, and, and the biggest city in the country. Um, Georgia is not noticeably, I mean, a much more closely divided state, uh, which is important to note. We also have open carry laws that make the security situation that much more complicated down here. Um, so I think a heads up was something that was very much appreciated. And there's going to have to be a lot of planning to go into all of this. 
Actually, I think we should also point out, Anthony, that there's a major difference between the case in New York, which is about whether Trump paid off a uh, a, a woman who claims that she had an affair with him, um, and this case, which is a much more serious case, a potential racketeering charge against the president. It relates directly and specifically to efforts to overturn the 2020 elections. So in some ways, Anthony, this is much more of a hot kind of story uh, or a potential indictment than even the New York one was. Yes? I think so. The, The New York case is, I think, less salient more broadly than whatever might be in the future here in Fulton County, simply because People were debating whether or not Alvin Bragg's case in Manhattan was strong or whether it was weak or whether it was purely politically motivated or, um, you know, whether he could ever secure a conviction or why he why he was even bringing it in the first place. Right. There was a lot of discussion about kind of the merits of the case where I think here um, you're going to see a lot more heated co- uh, contestation around um, the nature of the election. And, and we might see a reigniting of some of the controversy around surrounding uh, election denialism and the 2020 uh, election and the January 6th uh, insurrection and things like that. So I think that part of the reason why Fonnie Willis is so concerned and is alerting uh, law enforcement is is for you know all the normal regular reasons you would want to be concerned if you're going to bring an indictment against the former president of the United States. But I think that the stakes are just very different, and the reactions that we might see um, from the public at large are going to be very different accordingly. All right, um, Fred, uh, so let's move on and talk about the politics of this. The time frame, July 11th to September 1st, which Fonnie Willis has now laid out, um, is meaningful in the political cycle. Uh, the first uh, Republican presidential debate takes place in August. Um, by July, we're half a year away from the first Republican uh, states to vote in primary contests. So one of the aspects of this is that Fonnie Willis is potentially uh, lighting a fuse to a bomb that could explode on Donald Trump as his campaign is reaching a critical point uh, in the process. Right, which is why you have to imagine that uh, you know if she had all the information <laughs> that she wanted earlier, then she would have moved on this uh, earlier, and that seemed by all um, indications to be where she was headed. Um, but you know, prosecutors have to they have to follow the facts uh, as they come, and you know they they can't necessarily uh, predict in advance when those facts will uh, will will come to them. So, um, but yes, this is going to uh, have. Uh, political implications. And we can imagine that uh, if the New York example um, plays out here, and one might expect it to, I mean, he's going to demonize Fonnie Willis, uh, just as he's demonized Bragg, Uh, he's going to try to demonize the judge, etc. And that's going to be a kind of political component to it. And, And you can't, it's hard to know um, ex- in advance, how that's going to all play out, right? Because Donald Trump is very good at demonizing individuals. And uh, sometimes the more that he's under attack, um, the more people sort of rally around uh, a candidate. Um, and and that's been true, certainly been true uh, consistently for Donald Trump. I mean, his, his polling has actually gotten better um, since the New York indictment, right? So he's, he's pretty good at kind of, um, you know, saying, look, I am under attack. The left is trying to attack me um, because, you know, I'm the one who is out there fighting for you. Um, and, uh, you know, that that may play out that way again. But th- what he can't control is if he is actually indicted and he actually has to face uh, a trial and a jury and so forth, there's a there's a there's a reality beyond the, the voting booth where there's going to be some complicated questions about well, what happens if a president, if a, if a, if a candidate uh, is convicted, right? And that kind of, uh, that, that looms in the background, uh, as well. All right. So to finish this off tomorrow, first tomorrow, I'm wondering, I, I think Fred makes an important point. A district attorney can't allow an election cycle to determine whether she or he, uh, indicts someone at the same time. She's got, she is certainly aware of it. Um, it must be there in the back of her mind, but, but let me add to this. What we're looking at now is Trump's in uh, the next step in the New York case doesn't happen until December. Um, it, in this case, 
if he is indicted, a trial would not take place until, I assume, well into 2024. So now you're talking about the potential, and maybe later, for it to be uh, a big factor in a general election campaign. Yeah, of course. I mean, if, if former President Trump is to be indicted here, some of the first questions will be over the venue. Um, we're expecting one of the first mm-hmm. moves he would make is to move any proceedings to federal court, or at least try to, and argue that when he called Brad Raffensperger to tell him to find 12,000 votes, mm-hmm. he was doing it under the color of his office as the chief law enforcement officer of the United States. That's something that could take hours or sorry, not hours, months <laughs> to sort out and will be appealed and appealed again, probably. So we're talking about venue. We're not even talking about um, any arguments or, or you know charges in an indictment. So it could take years for a potential trial to resolve itself. Um, having that hanging over Trump's head might not be the worst thing for Trump's team. We've seen him fundraise over stuff like this and the the legal threats against him. I mean, there was no mugshot taken in New York, but his people were the ones who created a mugshot and put it on a t-shirt in order to sell it. I think having charges like this floating um, might help embolden Trump supporters and help them unite a little bit. Um, At the same time, it could scare away potential voters or donors um, who don't want this ethical cloud hanging over a candidate. So it is kind of risky business, but this is not something, should the DA move forward, this is not something that will resolve itself by November of 2024. All right, let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way, our final break of the show, and come back and talk about uh, Mifepristone and what we think might happen next. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Thank goodness. We have two professors of law and Tamara Hallerman, senior reporter from the AJC with us today, because I want to sort of go through uh, in in the most basic way where we stand on this battle over the legality of Mifepristone. So, Anthony, we know that, excuse me, that uh, a federal judge, a district court judge in Amarillo, uh, Texas, uh, uh, Matthew Kaczmarek, Uh, said FDA didn't vet Mifepristone properly, and therefore it should be blocked from being sent out to being used by women who need it for or want it for an abortion. We know that the appeals court put a stay on that, but did put in place a couple of restrictions saying it can't be sent out over the mail while this is pending, and it changed the number of months at which a woman uh, could still take Mifepristone. Okay, then the U.S. Supreme Court stays all of that and says this has to go back to the Fifth District Court. And I'm assuming that when it goes, I mean, back to the Appeals Court, Fifth District Appeals Court to resolve. So I'm assuming that in the meantime, the U.S. Supreme Court's decision uh, means the drug is completely legal in states where abortion is legal, right? Right. So I think it's important to to kind of peel back the the different layers uh, of the the litigation. So, right, mifepristone was approved by the FDA 23 years ago. Um, it's been used by some five million women to terminate pregnancies. Uh, by all accounts, it is a safe and effective drug. Um, so the litigation essentially said uh, that a, a number of doctors. Uh, claimed that they were somehow injured by the fact that Mifepristone was permitted to be on the market um, and that the FDA did not do their due diligence in approving the drug. And so you're correct that the district court in Texas said that the FDA did not follow the proper procedures and so the the drug had to be taken off the market. Um, At the same time, there there was parallel litigation in the state of Washington where a handful of states were anticipating this kind of litigation and asked for an injunction to require the FDA to, to continue uh, to to permit mifepristone to be administered in their states. And so you had dueling <clears throat> injunctions at one point that required the Supreme Court's intervention, essentially. 
um, because that Washington state or that Washington district court judge uh, did issue the injunction preventing the FDA from pulling the drug. And then the Fifth Circuit uh, tried to you know, go back to 2016 regulations and the Supreme Court court ultimately uh, came in and stayed all of that. Um, and so the status quo will remain um, un until you know, the, the litigation is, is resolved. So, you know, what, what I think we are seeing here is a lot of litigation uh, from courts or in courts uh, and, and recognition by states uh, attorneys general that Mifepristone really undermines the ability of states to enforce their really restrictive abortion bans because it is so widely available. Uh, it's a, it can be obtained through the mail and, and uh, women can travel you know, relatively easily. To, to get it. Um, and so I, I think what's what you're trying to see here is an attack on this on this medication in order to reinforce those state bans. But I would also note very importantly that this is a parallel litigation to other challenges to other drugs um, under uh, you know uh, religious objections. So you see, for example, uh, drugs that are preventative of HIV transmission being challenged, you know, under uh, religious rules and, and things like that. So, you know, there, there's a concerted effort here, I think, to take us back to an era of the late 19th century, like the Comstock rules and the Comstock Act, which is also here, where you have these really backwards, um, you know, kind of very socially conservative perspectives being litigated in court in order to restrict access to drugs that benefit pregnant women, uh, sexual minorities and, and all the like. So, Fred, let me put it in uh, practical terms for Georgia. Um, we know we have a six-week heartbeat law here. You cannot have an abortion after a so-called fetal heartbeat is detected. But um, the fact of the matter is that within those limits, mifepristone is still available legally uh, to women here, including through the mail. Yes? That's correct. So, you know, the with the district court opinion in Texas, if that had gone forward, then that wouldn't be the case, uh, because what uh, the federal district court attempted to do uh, is, a, like we called it a stay, but there's, that word stay gets thrown around in so many different contexts, um, but, but essentially to wipe clean the 2000 um, approval of this drug, right? I mean, you could all, um, one word that might fit better here is attempted to really vacate, um, make it such that that had, it could never have gone into effect. Um, 23 years later, right, which is which is quite remarkable, and you don't really see uh, that every day, to say the least. Um, but, uh, but but because of the United States Supreme Court's actions, um, which are temporary, right, this is still, there's still a lot of litigation to go, um, but the United States Supreme Court um, has essentially frozen uh, the district court's order, right, and so we're, 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 we're back where we began, um, which is that uh, at this time, um, mifepristone continues to be uh, available um, for uh, for abortion uh, to the extent that it is legal by state law and also for other uh, uh, diseases like uh, Cushing's uh, syndrome, for example. So this the, uh, mifepristone um, is not only an abortion drug. Um, that said, uh, that's that's obviously why it's in the spotlight. Um, it's what the district court. Uh, focused on, and it is uh, at this point, 54% uh, of abortions um, to, uh, are, this pill is what is used along along with another. Uh, Tamara, uh, because Kaczmarek, the litigants the uh, uh, brought came into court in Kaczmarek's court in Amarillo, uh, the plaintiffs, arguing that the FDA's process of approving mifepristone was faulty, I think it raises a question that needs to be uh, talked about. Is this really a case about abortion, or is it a case about the FDA, FDA's process of evaluating drugs? Of course, as Fred's already pointed out, if it's about evaluating the process, then there is no limit to the number of drugs FDA has approved that can be challenged. Or is it... Uh, is it more about abortion? And I, I guess it's about both, but we shouldn't leave out the FDA part of this. And I mean, it opens the door to all sorts of unintended consequences that I think um, folks didn't want to deal with. I mean, I think this this was meant to go after 
an abortion pill. But as former FDA officials laid out in a brief, there's all sorts of consequences here should this go through. Um, Anti-vaccine advocates could try and pull vaccines from the market that have been available for a long time. You could have drug companies asking judges to get involved if a rival's product is approved. You could have um, pharmaceutical companies that spent millions on R&D um, but got rejected by the FDA try and get second opinions from judges. And these are, you know, judges are legal minds. They're not scientific minds. They don't spend years approving judges drugs in the way that the FDA does. Um, and the FDA is seen as the, the world leader in all of this, as the gold standard for approving drugs. So if every drug is then open to litigation, it's just going to create a mess in the courts. And all of a sudden, you're going to have these legal and political minds weighing in on what should be a scientific debate. Fred, and then uh, Anthony, uh, uh, give us your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I mean, one of the, the scariest things that you just said, Tamara, is um, that it would put judges in the position sometimes of being able to say, oh, no, FDA, you didn't approve that drug, but that we, we disagree with how you got there. That drug is available, um, which for some reason, I don't know why that's even scarier to me um, than, uh, than getting rid of drugs that are already uh, on, uh, on the market. Um, but yeah, I mean... <laughs> This particular case, it's very, very, very hard to imagine a world in which uh, the district court opinion is ultimately uh, upheld, um, mostly for the reasons that that, uh, that Professor Christ pointed out here, which is um, these doctors don't have standing, um, and it, it it would require contorting the law beyond recognition um, to say that um, that 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 they do, um, and uh, you know, and so. And I think the Supreme Court also, despite what they did uh, last summer, um, traditionally the Supreme Court tries to clean up messes rather than kind of create grand new messes. You see this a lot um, this term when, when it comes to some cases about the internet where they were being told, if you rule this way, you're going to destroy the internet. And that really affected the judges and the, the tenor of their questioning, right? And so, uh, you know, they, they certainly don't want to create a world in which, uh, you know, one federal district court judge somewhere in the country um, who, you know, has it out for abortion or has it out for, you know, uh, HIV patients or, or whatnot, um, will uh, can, can really sort of set national policy um on uh, on on medicine anthony i think what we're seeing is a really concerted effort by conservative lawyers to undo a lot of the you know, the progress that we've seen in terms of women's rights and and lgbtq <clears throat> rights and um right the ability to for people to actually just live out their lives and and they're attacking this throughout multiple fronts right that we're, we're seeing an education policy we're seeing in all sorts of different other you know criminal law policies that are that the you know states are adopting and this is just another i think feature of that broader movement right where um the there's an attempt to bring the federal government back to this early 20th century late 19th century mentality where we're going to enforce laws that crack down on anything that the conservative legal movement deems as indecent, um, whether that be um, you know sexual mores or um, whether it be whether or not abortifacients should be used or discussed and the like, um, right? This is really a broad-based attack on individuals' rights and, and particularly the rights of people that have been, I think, increasingly built upon in the constitutional order um, for the last 50 years. So so this is just another iteration of that. Um, and, I, and I think we're going to see it continue on in, in the federal courts. Um, so, Anthony, while the ball's in your court, um, I, I, I think that the, the question is, this same Supreme Court, which uh, threw out Roe, now split apparently seven to two on this temporary uh, order, and uh, with Alito and Thomas uh, dissenting, what is that? Does this give us any clue that the court doesn't want to go any further in terms of federal regulation of abortion? Well, that's really hard to say. I mean, I, I think we're going to, you know, the, the court's going to be tested considerably in the future, right? We're, we're probably at some point going to see federal law, whether that be a federal law 
restricting access to abortion or protecting access to abortion under the Commerce Clause. We're going to test the court's power then. There, there are states like Idaho, which are attempting to criminalize the, 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 the um, you know, folks who leave the state to access abortions or to help others access abortions out of state. Um, you know, so, so we're really going to have, the, you know, the court's going to be tested in other areas in addition to this particular case. I think at the end of the day, it's important to recognize that that the court is an institution, that it's a political institution, and it only has so much capital to to drain on this issue, and it might have done so in in 2022, but we'll see. Um, I'm, I want to uh, uh, just take a different kind of take on all this, uh, tomorrow and then Fred. Um, we have a new poll from PBS, NPR, and Marist, which shows that two-thirds of the people who were surveyed said they have no faith in the integrity of the U.S. Supreme Court and that, and and a similar number, two thirds, uh, are opposed to the banning of medication abortions. This does not bode well for people's uh, feelings about federal court, the, the Supreme Court, for goodness' sake. And I mean, these folks have lifetime appointments, so to a certain extent, the, these public opinion polls don't matter. But at the same time, we know that the Chief Justice has done a lot. You know, he cares about the reputation of his court and how it's seen. Um, and so I'm sure this is not something that helps the situation. Fred? Yeah, I mean, I, they certainly, it's not enough. A, a, a poll is not enough for them to go one way or another. We also don't know what no. we see in this case that, that might. that. But on your but all that said, right, there is this line in Justice Alito's uh, dissent uh, where he says, and by the way, we don't know whether or not uh, President Biden would enforce a ruling of this sort from us in the first place, um, which was a really controversial line, but it really gets to that point, right? Um, yeah. If, if... Fred Smith, I'm sorry I'm interrupting you because we're running out of time. Uh, yeah, but sure. thank you, Fred Smith. Thank you, Anthony Michael Christ and Tamar Hallerman uh, for being with us for today's political rewind. I do want to make a quick note, Natalie sent me a headline just a moment ago as we do the show live. Harry Belafonte uh, died at 96 years old overnight. Uh, he was an extraordinary force. In the 1950s, when segregation was still incredibly widespread, he became a star in the upper ranks of show business among blacks and whites. He went on to become a, a very deeply involved in the civil rights movement and um he is a, 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 an individual who so many people have been not only entertained by, but inspired by as well. So it's sad news about Harry Belafonte. That's it. We are completely out of time for today's Political Rewind. Back with a brand new show tomorrow. Uh, in the meantime, everybody, take care, stay healthy, and be kind to one another. Bye. <laughs>